Hello, I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Hollywood. Here at Hollywood, we recently hosted four online hustings looking at some of the big issues in the run-up to the election on May the 6th. Yesterday's podcast was on education, and in our fourth and final session, journalist Andrew Learmonth chairs a debate on health. Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to the Hollywood BMA Health Hustings. Uh, my name is Andrew Learmonth. I'm a journalist with Hollywood Magazine, and I'll be chairing today's event. Uh, we've been joined by representatives of all five main political parties uh, from Labour. We have Jackie Bailey from the Conservatives, Donald Cameron. Alex Cole Hamilton is here on behalf of the Liberal Democrats, Emma Harper from the SNP and Alison Johnson from the Greens. Uh, very shortly, I'm going to ask them to take two minutes each to set out their party's policies and priorities on health for the coming parliamentary term. Um, we'll then move on to questions. Uh, you should see a, a chat box on your screen. If you have a question, a, a comment, a, a criticism or a point you think needs to get across, then please put it in there and we will try to get through as many as we possibly can. We've already had quite a lot coming in, so we're going to have to sort of race through them all, but we'll try and get through as many as we possibly, possibly can. If you'd like to tweet about the event, you can do so using the hashtag HollywoodHustings21. Um, today's event is being recorded and will be sent out uh, as an on-demand replay if you want to watch this again. Um, before we start the hustings, I'm joined by Dr. Lewis Morrison, Chair of BMH Scotland. Um, Lewis, it's been some 12 months for the NHS in Scotland. Um, we'll never see anything quite like this uh, again. Um, as we come out of the pandemic, or at least move on to the next stage of the pandemic, what are the priorities for the BMA? So I think before we get into the meat and drink of um, how we're going to fix things, I think there are some basics which are about recognising how we treat staff and staff welfare. And, and I think one of the specific things we're looking for is full recommendations of the Sturrock report into behaviours in NHS Highland to actually fix, if I can put it that way, the culture in the NHS. And I, I think clearly the other main thing, as you mentioned, as we come out of the pandemic is really to focus on the welfare of staff and allowing as part of NHS recovery, first and foremost, staff recovery. I think as we build for the future, what we're also looking for is um, some very clear plans to widen access to medicine as a profession in Scotland um, as we start to build towards the future. You talk in the manifesto, you start, sorry, I should have said you released a manifesto just the, the other week there, and you talk in the manifesto about a, a national conversation with, with all stakeholders. Can you tell us a bit more about what you want to be discussed in that conversation? So that, that does sound a little bit sort of buzzwordy. What we really mean by that is that, you know, after the new parliament forums, what we need is a cross-party consensus and some real plans for what the NHS needs to deliver now in one, two, five and ten years time and a clear workforce plan behind that to actually deliver for the health needs of the Scottish population. So as well as healthcare, we're also talking essentially about the public health as well. But I think what we need is something that's explicit and which looks beyond the term of just one parliament. And, you know, one of the, uh, the I think one of the most starkest parts of manifestos, you've obviously surveyed all your members very, very recently. I think it was, what, 40% of doctors who responded were currently suffering from depression, anxiety, stress, burnout, emotional distress. It's incredibly worrying. I mean, how can we ensure that, you know, what do you, what do you think needs to happen to ensure that well-being is a, a key consideration? At, at every level here? So I think at a very local level, some, we learned some simple lessons, and it's a shame it took a pandemic to teach us them, um, about provision of rest areas, being able to get a hot cup of coffee and some hot food, you know, simple things. But I think beyond that, some doctors and indeed lots of other healthcare professionals are going to need significant psychological help as a result of the things that they've been through this last year. And those services, I think, are now in place, but we need to make sure that people can access them. I think when we look beyond that, whatever we do to fix things after this pandemic, it has to make sure that we don't just recruit people to the NHS, we need to keep them in it. And that means keeping them healthy, but we need some very, very clear plans on workforce, which focus not just on recruiting new people and training new people, but keeping the people that we've got and the best way to do that is to keep them healthy. And I guess that's why today I've been speaking about not raising expectations unreasonably about what the NHS can deliver in these next few months or year or so, because that recovery is the first step. Thanks very much, uh, Lewis. Um, now we're going to go and ask 
each of the politicians, just as I said, to outline their, their key priorities for the next parliamentary term. We're going to do an alphabetical order, so I'm going to start with Jackie Bailey from Labour. Jackie. Thank you very much, Andrew, and thank you to the BMA um, for the invitation to their hustings. Um, can I start by thanking all of you, all health and social care staff, for what you've done in the last year? Because despite the pandemic planning exercise, which we know wasn't properly implemented, um, you managed to turn the NHS around really quickly and were unstinting in your efforts to keep us all safe. So we do all owe you a debt of gratitude. Um, but as we come out of COVID, everyone's attention is going to be on recovery, but I don't want us to miss the opportunity to make sure we plan better for the future. So we have enough beds, we have enough equipment, the ability to increase capacity and particularly staffing above all else. Um, I have to confess it's been 10 years since I was in the health portfolio. It was indeed my favourite portfolio, but we're still talking about some of the issues that we talked about back then, workforce planning being one of them, and it is absolutely key to our recovery. So I agree very much with Lewis's comments about workforce planning. I recognise the existing workforce have shouldered a huge burden. They're burnt out. So now more than ever, we need to get workforce capacity right um, and we're already carrying too many vacancies amongst nursing staff and consultants and GPs. Scottish Labour has a recovery plan in place for the NHS, how we catch up with diagnosis and treatment, how we catch up with the backlog of patients waiting for operations and appointments, how we improve mental health services and how we create a national care service. But at the heart of all of this and above all else, we need to value our NHS staff because they are the backbone of the NHS. And that does mean having a really serious conversation between clinicians, between patients and politicians about what is achievable and how we can move forward together. Thank you, Andrew. And from Conservatives, Donald Cameron. Thank you, Andrew, um, and to the BMA for organising these hustings. I'm delighted to be here. Um, it goes without saying that this is a hugely important election for healthcare in Scotland, given our recent experience with COVID. On the one hand, the pandemic has shown the very best of our NHS services and the work of our doctors and health professionals. Uh, and we've seen this workforce go above and beyond the call of duty, risking their lives in the face of a, a largely unknown and unpredictable virus. But on the other hand, we've also seen how many of the long-standing issues within our NHS have been exposed by the pandemic, whether that's long waiting lists for operations or mental health support or the workforce problems within the NHS. And in many senses, this is a crisis upon a crisis. Um, my party recognised that COVID means there is a heightened need to finally tackle many of the significant challenges. But we also need a long-term plan for our health service that puts the workforce at the heart of decision-making and that sees more investment and an NHS that is fit not just for the next five years, but for the next 25 years. Now, earlier today, uh, the Scottish Conservatives launched our manifesto and investing in the NHS is among our foremost priorities. I'll briefly point to a few policies. We propose to invest at least two billion pounds in our NHS by 2026, with a further 600 million on top of that to help clear the backlog. And this uh, second other policy is one I'd like to mention, picks up on something that Lewis said, is we would invest an additional 40 million in staff wellbeing this year. That would include rest facilities, mental health services, and a fully established uh, support service. Why? Because we want to prioritize the health of our health workers. And during the last year, one thing that has been made clear to me, talking to healthcare professionals in many different disciplines, regardless of what they do, are the issues that they raise about morale and about workload and about stress. Those are just some of the policies that we've announced today. And um, I'm sure we'll come on to other areas during the next hour. But thank you very much for having me. And I look forward to taking your questions. Thanks, Donald. Uh, now on to, to Alex Cole Hamilton from the Liberal Democrats. Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh, it's great to be here among you today. It's great to have an opportunity like others have done to thank you as healthcare professionals for all that you do. You guys were spinning gold out of straw long before coronavirus hit. You have been uh, a beleaguered profession in many ways in the sense that um, you have gone underfunded, uh, workforce planning has not been up to scratch, and yet you have um, been meeting ex uh, increasing demand with stoicism and with grace. Um, so it's my pleasure to be here before you today as uh, a Shadow Health Secretary, uh, spokesperson for the Scottish Liberal Democrats. And it's fair to say, I think that this year, like no other, um, health has captured the national consciousness in a way that it perhaps has not done 
as it should have done previously, because obviously our NHS and our key workers have borne the brunt of our fight against the pandemic. Liberal Democrats are committed to further recognise and reward the efforts of our NHS staff, but a pay rise or a one-off thank you payment, whilst welcome, is not enough to ensure our health and social care services return to pre-pandemic levels and address the problems that um, were that faced uh, prior to the emergency. We need an urgent plan to put the recovery first with a needle sharp focus on preventative health to reduce pressure on the NHS and improve the quality of life for everyone across Scotland. Improving wellbeing based on people's lived experiences must be instrumental in removing the barrier people face to good health. That's why Scottish Liberal Democrats at this election will undertake an urgent plan to use the skills and experience of our health service staff together with the lessons learned from the innovation in the crisis to get our NHS and our country's health strong for the future. That's a, also about an, a transformational investment in mental health, £400 million across this parliament, in addition to what's already being spent, but more importantly, workforce planning to ensure that people have fast access to a counsellor, bearing in mind that one in four GP appointments is made with an underlying mental health condition. Uh, we want to reform social care that, so that there's an offer there in our communities there which can respond to the needs of those leaving hospital. Far too many patients are spending too long in hospital for want of an adequate social care package in the community to sustain them. It causes an interruption and in flow throughout the whole of the NHS. We want to conduct an urgent catch-up programme for the NHS, increasing the number of diagnoses and treatment centres within health boards so that people can get access to screening and treatment in uh, more localised areas, considering how many uh, people have missed out on that in the pandemic um, and the number of cancelled operations that we'll have to catch up on. Uh, we need to empower GPs and health professionals working in the community to refer people for appropriate tests on suspicion of cancer and other life-limiting conditions and we'll expand testing capacity in every health board to meet the needs to uh, the needs of the people they serve. Uh, and the final thing I'll say is this, um, one of the key challenges facing the NHS right now is a huge and acute backlog in hospital waiting times. 380,000 times is the number of times that the hospital or the treatment waiting time guarantee has been breached by this government. It is setting the NHS up to fail and I think you as healthcare professionals have borne the brunt of that. Most patients, many of my constituents, will receive a letter saying that they can be guaranteed of treatment within 12 weeks when there isn't a chance that they will be seen within 50. We need to stop lying to people, or the government needs to stop lying to people. We need to be straight with them. They're adults and they'll understand. Uh, so we need to manage expectations and support you and the workers around you uh, to meet the challenge that not just is caused by this pandemic, but its aftermath as well. Thank you. That's Emma Harper from the SNP. Hi everybody, um, thank you to the BMA and Holyrood magazine for inviting me to be here today. I've been a member of the Scottish Parliament for five years and I've been Deputy Convener of the Health and Sport Committee in this Parliament session and helped direct and inform health policy in Scotland. I'm also a member of many of the health-related cross-party groups, which I've found extremely helpful to engage with many people from our um, persons with lived experience as well as our health professionals. And before politics, I was a trauma nurse for 30 years in America, England and Scotland. And this experience has been invaluable to my work as an MSP in Parliament as well as in my region. And during the pandemic, I've been able to return to the front line. I've been priv privileged to be part of the vaccination team of NHS of Fries and Galloway. And during that time, I've been able to engage with colleagues and hear directly how they are coping or not coping with the pandemic and the, the issues that have arisen with that. The First Minister has launched the recent SNP manifesto and at the heart of it is a safe and steady and experienced leadership of Nicola Sturgeon who continues to lead the country through and out of this unprecedented crisis. And the manifesto contains a bold and ambitious policy and a programme to kickstart and drive recovery, including much support for health care and health and, health and care in uh, our social care system as well. We need to recover from the pandemic and we need to recover from the bad Brexit deal that uh, has been uh, foisted upon us. Um, I'm sure we're going to cover more in detail about the manifesto as well, so I won't list all of that. Um, I agree with the uh, with Lewis uh, Morrison and Dr Miles Mark, Mark when they said that political parties must be realistic about our expectations of our NHS in Scotland. 
and our NHS needs to increase its capacity and the workforce. And we must remember that our NHS staff have been at the front line of this pandemic, working extra shifts and extra hours under extreme stress and pressure and anxiety. And I am keen to support that as a health professional as well. I'm keen to work with the BMA, the Scottish Academy, the Royal Colleges and other organisations because through collaboration we will help support and make our NHS fit for purpose in the future. And I like to use Harry Burns's language. He wants to see a Scotland that will flourish. Well, so do I as well. Thanks. Thanks, Emma. And uh, last, uh, but by no means least, uh, from the Scottish Greens, Alison Johnson. Um, thank you very much, and I too would like to begin by thanking the BMA and Holyrood magazine for organising this important hustings. I think it's fair to say that the pandemic has shone a light on underinvestment in Scotland's health and social care systems and the huge and growing inequalities in public health and life expectancy. Um, the Greens believe that everyone has the has a right to the highest standard of physical and mental health, and we recognise that this means investing in care and pursuing an ambitious preventative agenda, getting to the root causes of poor mental and physical health. And we know that poverty is one of those. I think it's absolutely key as we recover, we want a, a green and fair recovery from the pandemic. And that is, if, if we want to recover properly, we have to support our health workforce to do so because you know, this pandemic has shone a light on their work in a way that, that we've not previously seen. Our health and care workers need time to heal from the pandemic and they must be properly supported to do so. So we will prioritise the well-being of those who've worked so hard to keep us safe and well. I think for too long the contribution of, of nurses has been undervalued and we support an increase in salary for them of 12.5%. But we want to ensure that all health and social care workers have access to dedicated mental health support and counselling. We want to increase the number of funded university places for nursing students. We want to ensure access to healthy food and hydration in the workplace. And we want to make sure that, you know, if breaks, if it's impossible to take a break, then staff should be paid overtime at that point. Although I, I would reiterate, I think breaks are absolutely key. We need to support more flexible hours for those working in health and care. We want to create a bursary for student paramedics equivalent to the nursing and midwifery one. I think it's, you know, key when so much contact occurs in our, our GP practices, that those appointment times are longer and we would support a 15 minute appointment time as a minimum standard to enable the important conversations there to happen. And also in our GP surgeries, we want access to mental health clinicians, to welfare rights advisors, to community links workers. I appreciate I'm over time, so I'll stop there, but really looking forward to questions this afternoon. Thank you. Well, you weren't over time at all, Alison, I think, you know, Bang on time. Um, but we'll, we'll go on anyway. So um, let's start with the first question, if that's all right. So the first question, according to the, the, the BMA survey, I think 65% of doctors said that politicians don't value them or the services they provide. They feel 65% of doctors, sorry, feel that politicians don't value them or the services they provide. So I suppose the, the first question is, how would you restore that? And we'll maybe go um, in reverse order, if that's okay. So we'll start again with you, Alison. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, in the last session of the Scottish Parliament, I led a debate on funding for our GP practices and was calling for a higher percentage of NH spend to be focused there because we know that some 90% of contacts happen in our communities. Um, but I'm absolutely determined to continue to prove that I very much value the work of each and every individual who's working in health and social care in this country. Um, in our manifesto, we want to commit at least 11% of health spending to general practice by the end of this parliament. We want to build that GP workforce. As I've said, we want a minimum of 15 minute appointments because I think that's obviously far better for those staff working in surgeries and as part of that multidisciplinary team. And, and also, you know, it just enables people to have the types of conversations they need if they want to build the relationships which are at the heart of health and social care. You know, we speak about outcomes often, um, often in Parliament, you would come to the conclusion that there's an obsession with targets. But what this is all about at the end of the day, I think is relationships. And we have to make sure that we have the capacity and the resource and the staff that enable people to build those relationships. I want to make sure that, as I've said, that every GP practice has access to a community links worker, 
to a mental health clinician, to welfare rights advisors, so that all of the staff working throughout the health service can focus on the things that they have, you know, their specialties, instead of feeling that they're, you know, trying to provide information that that would be best provided elsewhere. Thank you. Thanks, Alison. And so, Emma, same question to you. How would you restore that trust? I think one of the challenges, obviously, is making sure that everybody engages and listens. So re-establishing trust with our uh, the people that say they don't trust politicians is obviously critical to making sure that we can support our NHS and collaboration with the professionals who are the clinicians on the front line that uh, as we go forward. One of the challenges I see is that we've seen um, day after day that the First Minister has been able to in install a confidence in, in the people in Scotland who support her day in, day out, standing up, speaking to people and informing them and being there uh, right in the middle of the pandemic for the past year. And also one of the challenges I see is when we look at what's happening in uh, Westminster, when it's hard to get an update from the Prime Minister and even looking at how contracts are awarded for procurement in the Westminster, I'm curious about how we ensure trust and we need to separate. I think that the fact that our NHS in Scotland is doing really, really well and we know that we've heard some many challenges south of the border. So I want to make sure that uh, what this the, the SNP's plan is that we will continue to work and collaborate and engage with the professionals to make sure that we support engagement uh, with everybody going forward. Alex, if I can come to you next on, on this one. I think it's a really good question because uh, it's small wonder that um, healthcare professionals don't trust politicians because in politics, talk is cheap. And I've been elected five years. Five years ago, when I was first elected, um, we were talking about the need to do more for staff well-being on the front line. And here we are coming out of the teeth of the worst health emergency that any of us have ever known. And we've done nothing about staff well-being. I'll give you a, a little example. A couple of nights ago, I was knocking doors as part of the election campaign in my constituency. And I uh, knocked the door of two uh, critical care nurses who'd spent the last year in the COVID ward. And both of them have post-traumatic stress disorder. But neither of them have any sort of hard and fast treatment pathway for that PTSD. Um, they know they've got it because they, they know about PTSD, but they, there's no nobody's actually offered them any uh, support. They they describe a, a horrific year, a absolutely horrific year of um, um, you know long shifts, having to watch how much liquid you on board because you can't go to the loo during your shift because otherwise you'd have to disrobe and and, and decontaminate yet again. Um, so it's very easy for politicians to stand up and thank the NHS, and you're probably sick of hearing us do that if we're not meeting that with activity or, or action to address that. So I think we do. Need dedicated in-house support, mental health support for uh, staff and, and key workers. We need to get serious about bullying cultures in the NHS as well. I think that the National Whistleblowing Helpline is only as good as the confidence that staff have in it. I'm not sure they do. And whilst many health boards and uh, working environments are excellent, there are still problems where people feel uh, belittled and not, not empowered to come to work and, and uh, in an atmosphere of dignity and respect and we need to we need to address that too and the final thing i would say is this is that um patients i think give uh the the full force of their anger uh, how long they've had to wait at healthcare professionals because they think they've been lied to by healthcare professionals. It wasn't healthcare professionals that passed a ridiculous law saying that you'll get treated within 12 weeks. It was politicians and we've let you down. We've failed. That that experiment is is broken and and uh, was was never going to work in the first place. I think we need to be, as I said in my opening remarks, we need to be honest with people about how long uh, it is going to take to, for them to be seen, about where they are in the queue, so they can make informed decisions about whether they have alternative um, solutions to that, if they've got private means, um, or at least they can understand the pressures that the NHS are under. Uh, but you know, you should have the thanks of a grateful nation, but that's more than just clapping for carers. That's about proper remuneration. It's about um, proper respect, and it's about feeling safe and protected when you come to work. Thanks, Alex. Uh, Donald. Thanks, Andrew. I mean, it's a it's a really important question, and you know, it, it's no surprise I think that that health and, and social care staff have lost faith or lost trust. Um, how do we as politicians restore that? I think we have to be much much better at listening. 
to our NHS uh, workforce, our doctors. That's been difficult over the last year because doctors and health workers have been um, unbelievably busy uh, and prioritizing their work, uh, being at the forefront of, of the pandemic. And I think, you know, as others have said, politicians of all stripes can be guilty of just paying lip service to the issues when in reality we should be doing much more, not just to engage with health professionals, but, but take action. Um, and you know, I think the pandemic has revealed that quite, quite clearly. Um, we've all, we'll all have had contact with, with health professionals, regardless of what they do. Now I've spoken about issues of morale and, and workload already, but you know, we, we know during the pandemic there were issues about PPE or difficulties rolling out the vaccine um, at the beginning. Uh, and many doctors and nurses and, and other workers who I spoke to just felt that either their managers or civil servants or government weren't listening. Um, and you know, others have touched on on bullying. That's another good example. There's the Sturrock report uh, Lewis mentioned at the very beginning. Um, that happened way be, way before COVID. You know, there has been an issue here way before the pandemic struck, uh, and it's it's sort of indicative of of a problem whereby you know we need to improve um, the relationships between uh, you know doctors, etc., nurses, and and managers within it, within the health service. Um, uh, and, and for those reasons, you know, and I've touched on other points in my opening, um, we also need to support the well-being of those who look after us. And as I've said before, we, we see that as a party as being central to, to one of our pledges at this election. Thanks, Donald. To you, Jackie. Um, a remarkable degree of consensus. I think we, we all recognise that talking is the easy part, but demonstrating that we value um, health professionals is, is something that we need to get much better at doing. So whether that's ensuring we work together, and I think there is a partnership um, between staff, between patients, and indeed between politicians, um, both to manage expectations, but also to ensure that we are highlighting the right bits for the recovery. Um, and we need as part of that to recognize the real fatigue that staff feel, and whether that's providing mental health support or rest places, these are basics in rebuilding that relationship. But I come to a local example. Do you know, the Vale of Leven has struggled for out of hours services from GPs. Um, and the problem actually wasn't the GPs, it was the health board and how it chose to organize it. Local GPs working with other um, health professionals were the solution to that local problem. So I'm all for empowering that kind of you know, view, both at a local level and indeed at a hospital setting, that we need to listen more and then act on what we hear. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. Um, as I said, we've got so, so many questions. So we're going to try and fire through as many as we possibly can. Um, there's one subject that seems to come up more than any others. I, I think it's over staff shortages. So we have Zoe Muir from NHS Grampian. There's a huge shortage of nurses and nursing colleagues are leaving. How do we propose we encourage colleagues to remain working in nursing? Um, Ross Barrow from the College of Podiatry, uh, pretty much the same question, given that podiatrists are experts in foot and lower limb management in Scotland's NHS is a shortage of podiatrists. What do the panel think is the best way to reverse the trend where they're leaving? Um, Angela Dixon from Kirkcaldy Health Centre, how do we improve the health of the people of Scotland with a shortage of GPs, nurses and clinical psychologists? And there's about two or three other questions along those lines. So I, I think, um, uh, Donald Cameron, can we come to you first? How do we how do we reverse the trend of staff shortages? Thanks, Andrew. I mean, I think you, your question illustrated the point. Um, this isn't just a an issue in one branch of the medical medical profession. It's an issue across every discipline and in every profession. It's an issue with consultants. It's an issue with GPs. It's an issue with nurses. There is a fundamental problem uh, of shortages, and that means that pressures are then placed on those who remain in the workforce uh, and even greater pressures are placed on them uh, at a time when they have just gone through 12 months of, of hell really um, in terms of trying to deal with a pandemic. So, you know, it, it's, it's time's up really to, to, to stop sort of hammering about this. And we now need to, to do something um, to increase the workforce. We, we as a party would increase um, medical school training places in line with future forecasts of need and, um, we, for instance, think that uh, priority should be given to Scottish domicile students and access and graduate entry programmes should be promoted. And um, we also would support um, GPs by investing at least 11% of the overall budget, NHS budget, into general practice. But above all, and my final point is that we need, we need greater flexibility, particularly at the earlier stages 
of uh, people's careers. Um, and I think, you know, to allow, to allow nurses um, uh, and doctors at the early stages of their careers to have the time to train, to continue qualifying in, in various disciplines, et cetera. And I think that would improve retention of staff. Thanks, Don. Can I come to you next time? How would you retain staff in the NHS? Thanks. It is a really important issue. And as Donald mentioned, it's not just nursing, it is other areas as well. And just looking at uh, some of the work that's been done that I know locally in NHS and Fries and Galloway, they've implemented clinical psychologists in safe space areas to help support the critical care staff that Alex is talking about that find that they don't have um, best support. So NHS to Fries and Galloway on the ground are actually implementing frontline support for mental health psychological services and making space and breathing space available for the staff online. Now, for me, talking to my colleagues, many of them um, are challenged and struggling, but I know that in um, Carlisle is just close enough to us that uh, NHS and Fries and Galloway have been able to recruit staff from uh, other areas, other, other health boards in the north of England. And that's been beneficial. NHS Scotland has a higher rate of pay for, um, for acute service nurses. And also that we have the ability to um, have a, a, a recruitment, um, a, like a golden handshake for up to £30,000 grant to help recruit people. So the recruitment part is really important, but so is the retention as well. And uh, the bursary that supports nurses in their education and training that happens in Scotland is the highest in the whole of the UK. So £10,000 can be awarded to nurses to be recruited into training. One of the things that I'm really keen to support is flexible work and flexible shifts. The four day week is something that's really, is really valuable. That's what I did when I worked in California. I worked four 10 hour shifts and that allowed me a more flexible approach in my work um, balance as well. So there's many things that we can continue to do and we can support the, the retention of others as well as nurses looking at uh, retention or recruitment of podiatrists, for instance, from other areas. That's something that would be really interesting to look at because, because of the amount of money that's spent in the NHS looking after like type 2 diabetes complications. So that's something that I think is really, really important. Thanks, Emma. Um, so uh, record vacancies in the NHS, Jackie Bailey, what would Labour do to, to fix this? Yeah, I think the, the problem is a long-standing one, and I alluded it, to it, it with my opening comments. I cannot believe we are still having debates about workforce planning. It is, you know, to an extent, a no-brainer that you need to train sufficient people um, to ensure there is capacity in your NHS going forward. The thing that makes me very, very distressed at the moment is the extent to which I'm hearing of a lot of people planning to retire early. They're doing so because of what they went through over the past year, but that creates a critical capacity issue for the NHS that's going to happen sooner rather than later. It's going to happen before we've had time to train all these additional um, doctors and nurses and allied health professionals. Um, so there is something about welfare, there's something about valuing staff, and that means pay, and it means terms and conditions. Um, it is also maybe speaking to those who are planning on retiring to look at whether there are flexible working arrangements so we can keep their expertise within the NHS in some shape or form. Um, and of course, yes, we do need to increase the number of places for Scottish domicile students in nursing, in um, you know, being doctors, consultants, in allied health professionals. We would set minimum intake numbers for those such as radiographers, um, physios, you know, pharmacists, right the way across the board. Because unless we start planning this now, we will run into real problems, real problems in a few years' time. Thanks, Jackie. Uh, Alison, how would the Greens fix this? Well, it, it almost seems intractable, doesn't it? Because we've been discussing this certainly during my 10 years in Parliament. And I think the pandemic has you know, increased demand, it's exacerbated existing backlogs. But those backlogs, we, we've been debating them as well for the past decade. And the fact that they go on and on, whether it's cancer services or mental health services, they tell us something quite clearly 
that we don't have the capacity to meet the demand, that we don't have the workplace, or we don't have the staff in place, or we don't have the resources, or we don't have the screening technology. I mean, we know that there are shortages in specific fields like diagnostics. Um, you know, Ross Barrow there was speaking about podiatry. We're well aware of the situation when it comes to nursing and so many people hoping to retire um, sooner than we might wish. So we have to act now. I mean, I am heartened by conversations with universities in recent days. I've been told that nursing has never been more popular as a career choice. And I've got no doubt at all that some people will have been inspired, you know, moved and determined to act on what they've seen during the pandemic. But we want them to have the benefit of those who've been working in these areas for some time to pass on that experience. So they need time to recover. And I think we need to make this an attractive career. I mean, as we're talking about various parts of our work being automated, that's not going to happen when it comes to podiatry or nursing. These are fabulous caring professions. They are really meaningful careers. So they should be well paid and valued. Um, and I, I just think we need to make sure that we are really looking at the demand and applying ourselves to making sure we have the staff to deal with it. Because if you're feeling constantly harassed and stressed about your ability to do your job properly because there aren't enough of you on a ward or you're continually a nurse or two down, that begins to have a really wearing, damaging effect. You know, and like everyone on this panel, I'm sure I've got friends and family who are working in healthcare across Scotland. So we understand what the situation is. I think flexibility around the healthcare workforce is absolutely key. 12-hour shifts several days a week may not work for everyone. So I think we need to be doing all that we can to make sure there are flexible options. You know, I have a, a, a friend in nursing who has said that because of the demand now, you see change in, in the past, you might be asked to come in and cover a 12-hour shift, whereas now it's like, could you do six hours? Could you even do four? So it's almost like the demand is creating, it's enforcing a bit of flexibility, but why not have that? And I think when it comes to the basics like hydration, eating, there should be the best of facilities available to our staff so that they can eat well, they can hydrate, they can have the time that they need to have the breaks that they need. That mean they're not leaving at the end of a shift absolutely frazzled and stressed and thinking, how can I carry on doing this day after day, week after week? Because I do believe, well, I think, you know, there is no more important work and we could make these really attractive professions. I mean, they should be but the investment and the concentrated workforce planning has not been in place as yet. Uh, thanks, Alison. Um, Alex, do you want to sort of tell us what the Lib Dems are doing here? Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Um, well, I think we will not come to a more important question than this this afternoon, because um, the, the problems we have all identified um, in the health of our nation or, or the health provision in our nation come down to workforce planning. Um, the two um, the 2,000 children waiting more than a year for first-line child and adolescent mental health services is not for want of money. It's not a lack of cash that sees them turned away from acute inpatient care. It's a lack of staff to resource the beds behind them. And things are bad. The Health and Social Care Staff Experience Report of 2019, before the pandemic, found that only half of staff feel their organisation cares about their health and well-being. The NHS workforce is being stretched more thinly than ever before while dealing with more and more challenging roles. And the latest figures also show that 5% of NHS Scotland nursing and midwifery posts are vacant and 40% of care home services for older people report nursing vacancies as well. The BMA itself reports uh, that consultant vacancies have increased over the last two years and currently around 15%, that's the equivalent of a large hospital uh, missing from the workforce. Now, the staffing crisis didn't come from nowhere. I listen to Emma Harper, and I like Emma Harper personally, but a lot of this lies at the feet of her government. When Nicola Sturgeon was health secretary, she cut hundreds and hundreds of nursing and midwifery posts, saying it was a sensible way forward because of glut in the workforce at the time. Well, I'm sorry anyone could have seen the future and what, what, what that would lead to. The Scottish uh, government's own integrated workforce plan was a year late, despite every other member of this uh, panel calling for it. And, uh, and so I think what we need to do is this, is that we need to address the past failings of workforce planning in the NHS by presenting an annual workforce report for debate in the Scottish Parliament. 
make this somebody's responsibility, make it something that parliament scrutinizes and government knows, knows is coming for scrutiny, because otherwise things get left to, to fester as they have done, because everyone's agreed the workforce planning has been a problem for a year, uh, but we need to, to do that um, with, with regularity. We need to bring it to parliament, including a study of the reasons why newly qualified staff leave NHS to work elsewhere. I think it, as well as newly qualified NHS staff retention, I'd like to see easier pathways for retired clinicians to come back into service. Uh, one of the things, one of the key differences, and arguably one of the reasons why Scotland's initial vaccine rollout was slower than it was in England, was that there wasn't a pathway by which people who were trained to vaccinate could readily come back into the profession to do so. If you googled how volunteer to be an NHS vaccinator, you got a lovely shiny new website for NHS England, but nothing for Scotland. And I think that speaks volumes to how difficult it is for people who have perhaps gone away from the profession for a, a short period of time to come back in. But I think they are part of the solution. I think this has certainly excited a, a, a goodwill in, in that community as well. So that's part of it as well. Uh, thanks, Ads. So moving on from that, and I think it sort of ties in a wee bit to that, is uh, questions about waiting times. We've got a few questions from people asking about waiting times. Um, we have one sort of saying, you know, the 12-week legal guarantee has never been met. How do we expect an, an exhausted workforce to catch up? Um, Philip Gaskell from the NHS, do you agree that patients and carers deserve honesty and transparency from the NHS and politicians about just how long they will wait for outpatient appointments? Um, and with vastly increased waiting lists, many of which are years longer now due to the pandemic, how are we going to be honest with the public that we simply lack the staff to tackle these in a short time frame? Sorry, I was saying, can I come to you on that one first, please, Emma? Um, thanks very much. Um, you know, just a, a point to pick up on and what Alex said about returning to work as a vaccinator. I've been out of the NHS for four years and I returned quite easily. It was I was totally enabled in order to do that. So so there's obviously been some sticking points for other health professionals. But personally, I found it no bother at all. As far as um, waiting lists and waiting times, it is obviously a challenge and there's there's now that we've had a year of not doing hip replacements and knee replacements and, and other elective procedures, there's going to need to be a, a, a redevelopment or a remobilization of the National Health Service plans to attack the waiting list that we have. If colleagues of mine are already looking at how they're going to do that as far as cataract surgery um, and implementation, for instance. So, so I know that the health professionals are with our civil servants in, in the government who haven't stopped working either. Everybody has been flat out for a year and the, the waiting times and the challenges that have been, um, I guess, thrown up now because of, of COVID uh, have to be looked at in a systematic, collaborative way. And so that's part of, um, you know, I'm again, I'm not in the government, so I'm not privy to the behind the conversation um, plans and processes that are being put forward to tackle the waiting times. And the, and the challenges for that, but uh, the remobilization of the NHS is part of the Scottish National Party's plan to tackle waiting times as we come out of the pandemic. Thanks, Emma. Um, to you on that one, Alex, I mean, how, what should we be doing about waiting times? And is this a question about honesty and transparency as much as, as anything else? Well, I said this twice already um, in, in this meeting. Yes, it is. It's about being honest with people. It's about treating people like grown-ups and saying that not giving them the false hope and expectation of a letter. And it, this actually makes me viscerally angry because I meet many, many constituents who are in abject pain, clutching letters, saying they will be treated within 12 weeks when there isn't a hope in hell, they'll be seen in 50. And they make plans around these letters. They book holidays. They go uh, agree to go to weddings on the other side of the world in the expectation that they'll be through their convalescence only to cancel those plans because they're waiting by the phone just for the off chance that they might finally, finally get an appointment for being seen. This is a, a law that Nicola Sturgeon wrote and passed and it's been broken 200 times a day. It's been broken 380,000 times since it was first passed. So I would do several things. Firstly, um, I would point a minister for waiting times. This needs to be somebody's responsibility. Every time it's missed, um, there's a collective sigh within the government saying, oh, that's too bad. Uh, but nothing happens. Nobody loses their job. This needs to be somebody's utter focus until we're on top of it. Secondly, 
we need to be honest with people. And that's about two things. Firstly, giving them, based on what, what's known within the health board about the uh, amount of time it takes to get their particular treatment uh, that's required, how long approximately they're likely to have to wait. So that, as I said, if they're of independent means and could afford to go private, if that's the if that resolves the, the pain that they're in, then they can do so and make space for somebody else on the list. Um, but also then I, I think we need a system of being people being able to track their progress through the system. It's not a linear system. I think everybody understands that. And acute and life-threatening uh, cases might come in front of you in the queue and bump you down and delay you. But at least you'll have some line of sight, again, um, for preparedness so that you can plan your life and organize your life around that expectation. Uh, people love the NHS. It's a national, it's something they regard as a national treasure. Um, they're not going to throw the rat out the pram. If you tell them, listen, you need a new knee, but it's gonna be 45 weeks before we can give it to you. Uh, they'll understand that. They understand that that's the price you pay for free socialized national healthcare. But at the same time, it might give them options and say, well, in 45 weeks, I could have saved um, the £8,000 that I need to get it done privately or whatever it costs um, and, and have it done myself and be done in half that time. You know, the, it just treat people like adults, but also it just takes the pressure off our hardworking NHS staff who are constantly answering phones or their, um, their secretaries and their uh, staff are constantly answering phones from people in suffering who are angry, who have been lied to, again, because of a policy that was never ever going to be met but um was great for a few good headlines the day it was passed uh, thanks alex uh, and jackie can i come to you next yeah thank you um this is going to be one of our biggest challenges but but i am encouraged by the fact that that actually there was huge innovation in how the nhs turned around into dealing with covid and at the heart of that innovation were the clinicians who just seized the momentum and got things done. Um, I'm equally uh, encouraged by the fact that, you know, suddenly the NHS became a digital being. I spent time with my GP over Zoom. It was a fantastic experience. And that's actually how I would like to continue things in the future. So I don't want us to lose that innovation in our ambition to tackle the backlog, okay? I agree though, you know, there's absolutely no point having targets that are all going to be um, comprehensively missed, whether it's uh, the waiting time guarantee, whether it's access to CAMs, um, all of these things matter to people. And I think we should be honest with them. Now, I don't know about others, but certainly my um, post bag is now going up with those people who have stayed silent for the best part of a year, thinking there's a pandemic on, I shouldn't annoy anybody. They're now coming back and saying, so when is my hip operation? When is my knee operation? And becoming very frustrated that the NHS isn't able to mobilize really quickly and deal with them. Um, the reality is we need to be honest with people about the amount of time that they're gonna to have to wait. We certainly would like to look at the possibility of outpatient and elective centers, very much along the lines of the NHS Louisa Jordan, but we would need an infrastructure review to make sure that's possible and also you know, to make sure that there is the staffing to deal with that. But all of this needs to be taken forward in partnership with the clinicians, um, the nurses, and indeed patients themselves, so that we have a shared understanding of the way forward. Thanks, Jackie. Can I come to you next, Alison? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I think the question originally was around, you know, do we agree that honesty and transparency with patient is key? Is key? And well, always, um, absolutely always. And I think, this sort of comes back to, to um, Dr. Morrison's comments at the start of today's proceedings about a national conversation. You know, what is it that we expect from the NHS? What do we need of those working in it? You know, what should our expectations be? You know, mine are that the NHS is publicly owned, it's properly funded, and that we have access to the care that we need free at the point of need. Um, and it is frustrating, isn't it, sometimes? I can only imagine what it's like for those working in health and social care to hear us debate targets that those of you on the ground know that you don't have the capacity or the resource to meet in a month of Sundays. So I'd like to see some dialogue between, you know, better, more open dialogue between the politicians and the clinicians and the public health experts about what targets are helpful, you know, so that we make sure that they're meaningful 
and then we've got you know a better idea about the outcomes that we might achieve because if we're just bashing people over the head for not achieving targets I mean that can be really disheartening when you know you can't possibly meet them particularly now that we're you know emerging a little from the pandemic so I think some grown-up discussion and debate would be really welcome here um I think too you know one of the things we need to do in all of this this afternoon I think often our young people perhaps don't understand what careers there are what varied careers there are in the NHS you know when we speak about diagnostics and radiography and podiatry it's probably fair to say that we don't sort of come up through school saying oh I'd like to be a radiographer if when I grow up now I know how very vitally important that work is but I just wonder if we're doing a good enough job selling all the careers within health apart from those ones that we all you know we know about from watching dramas for example on television so I think there's more we could be doing to make sure that all positions within the NHS are attractive because that helps with backlogs but I do think we need to have a national conversation as well that you know puts us in a better position as to understand what is possible at the moment what's possible at the moment and what action we're going to take now to ensure that the workforce planning that urgently needs to happen is happening. Thanks, Alison. Uh, and Donald, finally. Thanks. Thanks, Alison. I'll, I'll try and be brief because I know time is short. I mean, I've, I've said elsewhere, I think this is one of the, the biggest challenges we face in public policy generally um, over the next few years, the, the backlog. Uh, it's not helped by the fact that even before the pandemic, um, you know, after 14 years in charge of health, the current Scottish government has failed to cut waiting times or, or improve services. I think that the, the, the background of this is not at all helpful. But we have to be realistic with people, as others have said, we've got to be honest and candid about um, you know, when they might have their test or their operation, et cetera. And the other point is that um, when we get to prioritizing those in need, that has to be led by clinicians, it has to be led by professionals uh, and by no one else, so that those who are most in need get seen first. I think that's really important. Um, there's lots we can do. We could try and make outpatient appointments and elective surgery available um, more than it is. Uh, uh, remote consultations, others have spoken about technology, we can speed up the delivery of the early di cancer diagnostic centres, etc. We need to encourage people to come forward. A lot of people haven't seen their GP or their doctor and they, they need to come forward. All of that will put pressures on NHS staff and doctors and we have to be cognizant of that and, and support them and resource them as much as we can. Thanks very much. I think we've probably just about got time for one more question, if that's all right. Um, I was going to try and avoid the Constitution, but we've had quite a few questions on the Constitution, so I'm going to ask it here. Um, this one comes from Peter Benny of Mental Health Tribunal for Scotland. What effect would independence have on the health of the people of Scotland? Um, Donald, I'll come to you first on this one, please. Um, I, I think I, I wondered if we'd get away from uh, the Constitution in this particular hustings, but um, you know, I, I think obviously it will come as no surprise. Um, I don't think we should be talking about the constitution in this election or indeed um, the prospect of another independence referendum. We've got far more important things to worry about, not least recovering from the pandemic. And I, for that reason, I, I hope that we can, you know, especially in the, in the world of health, um, there are so many crucial things that we have to focus on, some of which we've discussed over the last hour. Um, you know, if, if independence happens, I mean, I would be the first to say that there will be a serious issue of, of funding that will arise and that will affect the NHS. Um, but at the moment, I don't think we should even hypothesize. We need to concentrate on the priorities, which is is, is remobilization, is the, the, the morale and um, well-being of our NHS workforce and, and putting the recovery first. Thanks, Donald. And same question to you, Alison. Um, what effect should independence have on the, the health of the people of Scotland? Well, um, obviously, the Scottish Greens support independence, and I believe that autonomy and local governance as close to where decisions are being made is vitally important. I think that helps. I think that's very empowering. Um, and I think when people feel empowered, connected and involved, that that is very beneficial indeed. Um, I would note, of course, that um, Donald Cameron, who's not a supporter of, of independence, um, you know, Boris Johnston has offered the, the nurses in England a 1% pay rise. I think that's showing you what the, the impact of um, the UK government on the health of the population. You know, it tells us a lot about how they value that at a time when they're proposing, I believe, £10 billion spend on nuclear warheads. So, of course, it's all about priorities. We're currently dealing with a pandemic, but when the time comes, certainly 
um, I'll be supporting, you know, looking forward to that debate on our independent future. Thanks, Alison. Alex, uh, how do you feel about all this? Well, unsurprisingly, I, I don't support another referendum. Um, there's a couple of things. Firstly, I mean, you've got to look at what the offer of independence is in the round. Now, in particular, for example, there's the uh, the currency question and, and our future in Europe. Um, the SNP and the Greens uh, want us to use independence of life for back to Europe. You would think that that would make my Remainer heart sing. I am a passionate Europhile, but uh, it is not the lifeboat that either the Greens or the SNP would have you believe. Indeed, you know, the accession treaty, uh, accession requirements in the Maastricht Treaty require us to have a structural deficit of no higher than 3%, when ours is 8%. So put that in terms. If that's the priority for the Scottish government taking us into independence to get us back into the EU, then they have to pay down that deficit. That means income tax rises and service cuts. There is not going to be the money to fund the NHS in the way that we would like to. I mean, in the in the way that we would like to see £2.5 billion invested in it with £400 of the, million pounds of that top sliced for mental health. Independence would not allow that. And, and unfortunately, you know, it is it is the land of milk and honey in, in debates like this because people don't actually have to show you the ledger book, but you need to ask that question. You really need to ask to see those figures. Look, our nation is exhausted. Um, it is It needs a period of calm and stability so that we can uh, uh, get back and remove mobilize the NHS, get those operations done, get those waiting times down. We need every sinew of our collective political might focused on that gargantuan challenge. That means all of us putting aside our political differences, not squabbling interminably for months and years about the constitution, because ne never forget that while it is in the offing, the question of independence is the elephant in the room in every single political debate. It charges every debate in the Scottish Parliament and it takes attention and oxygen away from the issues that matter, like the sustainability of our health service. So Liberal Democrats say no to a second independence referendum. Let's put the recovery first. Let's put our health service first. Uh, Emma, I'm, I'm assuming the SNP think independence would be good for the health of the people of Scotland. Absolutely. I think the more that people are connected to, to the, the people that are making the decisions for them, absolutely better. We need to empower people. We need to empower communities. The setting up of the Citizens' Assembly is something that I support. The number one thing we have to do, obviously, is get COVID pandemic under control, roll out the vaccines. That's part of why I joined the team to help roll out the vaccines so that we can get the pandemic under control. Obviously, another independence referendum needs to be a decision for the people of Scotland to take. And I support people to have the right to choose their own future and not have a future foisted on us by a government that we didn't vote for. The health of the people in Scotland, I think, will be improved if the health, if we have full fiscal autonomy, we have the choices to, to move forward and make our decisions. One example would be that uh, the SNP want to introduce safe injection facilities in order to help support people out of um, drugs and uh, drugs harm. And if we can do that, it means that we can help support people to access services. And that's really important. That, and that's only one example of how we can improve the health of people in Scotland. I think uh, that we've already seen that um, our funding for the NHS, our ability to support our NHS is uh, critical for the Scottish Government led by the SNP and that's something that I think can only improve if we have independence for Scotland. Thanks Emma and uh, to you Jackie. Thank you. I've been getting increasingly frustrated sitting here listening to all of this because, you know, the NHS is devolved, public health is devolved. Many of the tools we require to improve people's health in Scotland rest in our hands already. And I cannot believe we've been through a pandemic where COVID does not respect boundaries and we're having this debate, frankly. Um, you know, the reality is if people want an independence referendum within two years, which is what the SNP have promised, then there will need to be less funding. Um, for the Scottish budget. In fact, it's the equivalent of the entire NHS budget being removed. I am not signing up for less funding for the NHS. And, and just think back, um, 2014 wasn't this wondrous civic event. It was divisive. Families ended up not speaking to each other. You know, we've got half the population thinking one thing and half the population thinking another. But the one thing we can unite around 
is the fact that we need unity, not division. We need to focus on recovery for the economy and jobs, for the remobilization of the NHS, and for goodness sake, for our young people who have been off school for the best part of a year and started back today. That has to be the priority for the next five years. Thank you very much, Jackie. Um, I think we can all agree that what has been a wondrous civic event has been the last hour, and I'm very grateful to all of the candidates for taking the time out of a very busy schedule to come and speak to us. I'm very grateful to the BMA for sponsoring the event. I'm very grateful to, to all of you for, for watching uh, and taking part. I'm really sorry, but there were so, so many questions that we just could not get into uh, round two. Um, and uh, so I do apologise for that. Uh, I'm quite sure that if you wanted to email any of our panellists uh, your questions, they would be more than happy to, to get back to you. Um, but uh, I'll, I think that we'll just leave it there. So thank you very much and goodbye. You've been listening to Holyrood Hustings podcast on health. This is the fourth and final Hustings podcast. If you missed any, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.